a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. It is a wide consensus from the international science community that since the 1800s, human activities have been the main driving force behind climate change. The rise in temperature is just the beginning of the story. The Earth is a system in which everything is connected, and alterations in one area can impact changes in all others. This in turn leads to extreme weather patterns, depleting resources, and declining biodiversity. What are the urgent and powerful measures that could help save the planet? How to achieve sustainable development? How to balance environmental protection with economic development? To discuss that, I'm pleased to be joined by our guest today, Mark Watts. He's the executive director of C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group. Mark Watts, welcome to the Hub on CETN. Welcome to China. Thank you. So tell us a bit about your trip. Um, you visited Beijing, Shanghai. You met with um, people in, across ministries and agencies. What do you hope to accomplish this time around in China when it comes to the fight against climate change? Well, China's the hope for the world on climate. It has to be the biggest economy in the world. Uh, largest emissions, but incredible leadership here. So partly what I was seeing in, in Shanghai just over the last few days is the transformation of the transport system there, the massive expansion of public transport, the extent of electric vehicles, which I guess you see as normal now in China, but for the rest of the world, mm. this is way ahead of everybody else. You know, fully electric bus fleets, taxis, such a large number of electric cars. So partly I'm here to, to get that inspiration, to see the leadership that's here in China that can be shared with the rest of the world, but also to see where there's opportunities to help Chinese cities. So I was down at the, the port in Shanghai. We've been part of creating a, a collaboration between Los Angeles port and Shanghai, so two of the biggest ports in the world, to create a green shipping lane right across from the west coast of the United States to Shanghai in China. Green ships, green ports, so reducing the emissions in the cities, but also all the way uh, as those goods are transported. That is great potential in that it could be one of the greenest and uh, one of the early pilot projects whereby cross-national sea lanes can be clean. When you think about the volume that is passing the sea lanes, uh, the, the tens of billions of mm. dollars are transported across the Pacific from China to the United States and vice versa. Yeah, 80% of everything that we consume is transported by ship. So if you want to reduce the emissions from transport of the goods that we consume, then you've got to deal with shipping. And it's generally, it's left out of the international treaties because the high seas are not the responsibility of any individual country. So if you want to create that green shipping, actually, you've got to have two destinations. You've got to make it green between the place that the goods start from and the, great, the place that they finish. So having two great port cities, Shanghai and Los Angeles, you can do that. You can create a first lane, but then we hope that many more cities will want to, to join in on that and connect to LA, connect to Shanghai, and then create those connections all around the world. But do you need buy-ins from other stakeholders, for example, the private sector, the trading companies, uh, the trade services companies, and uh, you know, the buyers and sellers? Yeah, and that, that's a lot of what C40 does. We create those multi-level partnerships with the businesses. So in this case, the ports need to know that the ship owners, and there's only two or three really big shipping companies in the world, 20 that totally dominate the market. So if they are willing to use green fuel for their ships when they come into dock, not to have those diesel engines running all the time, and all the time those huge container ships are running their engines to power themselves in docks, it's pouring pollution into the city. But if instead they can plug in to clean electricity, 
So it requires a lot of investment from the port to make that facility available. They need to know the demand is there from the shipping companies. And of course, the shipping companies want to know their customers are demanding it. Yeah. So they want to know the big retailers are asking for the goods to be transported more sustainably. Yeah, obviously, C40 is playing a big role, especially considering the circumstances, um, the time that we live in. The year 2023 is, in fact, the hottest recorded year in history. We've seen record rainfalls and record smashing heat. Uh, in fact, uh, Beijing, where we live in here, just suffered uh, you know, the heaviest downpour, I believe, in the past 60 70 years. Mm -hmm. um, to what extent do you attribute those irregular weather patterns to climate change? It's very clear. The, the climate change is massively exa exacerbating all of the extreme weather that we're seeing. The science has been pretty accurate about the general trend of what pouring excess greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere will do to our weather, weather patterns. Unfortunately, it hasn't been able to predict actually the speed with which our climate is changing. And most dangerously now, we're seeing some of the ecosystem tipping points that scientists didn't think would happen until we'd gone beyond 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels or 2 degrees starting to happen already. So, as you say, the hottest year ever, but it's been every single month of this year has been the hottest January ever, the hottest mm. February ever. We're, we're breaking every record with every month. The single biggest and the most dangerous, most worrying trend at the moment is the fact that the Arctic, so the, the north, northern ice cap, uh, which holds just billions of, of, of volume of, of ice, is heating up much faster than the whole of the rest of the globe. Five to six degrees, some years seven degrees hotter uh, than the rest of the, than the Earth is experiencing. The real danger here is, is, is twofold. One, that if that ice melts in big volumes, we're talking at many metres of sea level rise being released. But secondly, that, what that ice does at the moment, it reflects away a huge amount of the sunlight that comes into the Earth. So if that ice is permanently melted during the summertime as we're starting to get towards now, then it, it speeds up the whole radiative effect. It speeds up the warming of the whole of the planet in total. And so that, that's the single biggest tipping point that we're seeing, and that's driving a lot of other things then. It's driving the fact that the Amazon is, is really now starting to act not as a carbon sink, so it's not absorbing carbon emissions. The Amazon rainforest is producing carbon emissions because there are so many wildfires and this is why scientists are so so clear that we've got to stop producing fossil fuel fossil fuels stop burning fossil fuels right now or, or stop any new expansion of those fossil fuels right now and then it, and then reduce very very quickly because we we clearly haven't got much time left before those ecosystem tipping points are passed can you please mark shed light on um, how climate change is changing our lives, you know, the air we breathe, uh, the resources that we consume, the food that we eat. Well, I think we're seeing, you know, as you said, unfortunately, in cities are on the, on the forefront often here, so that extreme heat that you've been experiencing here in Beijing, yeah. true in so many places around the world, the, the extreme flooding, Jakarta, for example, just hundreds of thousands of people affected by flooding. I think the, the longer-term impacts, though, that you, that you kind of relate to there is... What happens when the rainfall patterns are so dramatically changed to the, the big crop producing parts of the world? So we've seen real drought in the Midwest of the United States, the bread pack basket of the, of the world for the past hundred years, now starting to actually reduce the trend of ever increasing agricultural production. So that tells us we've really got to start taking care. I think it means we've got to, mostly we've got to be more efficient in the way that we use resources. And you know, actually, there's a good thing in it for, for us here. This is not all bad news, because the more efficient we are, 
the more cost-effective that our lives will be, the healthier we can, we can be as well. The less pollution that we produce, the better quality of life we're able, we're able to achieve. But we've got to move fast. Yeah. Um, you mentioned 1.5 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. Can you please uh, elaborate on uh, what difference does it make? 1.5 degrees versus 2 degrees. Yeah, it doesn't sound much, does it? 1.5 yeah. degrees, if you think about the average change between the day, it doesn't sound like anything at all. But for the entirety of human existence, so 300,000 years essentially of Homo sapiens, the climate that we've thrived in has been in a very, very narrow band that's rarely changed over sort of 1.5 to 2 degrees. We've changed in just the last 150 years. We've increased the temperature, average temperature of the Earth by 1.5 degrees. But I was, as I was saying, in some parts of the globe, that increase is much, much bigger in the Arctic and the amount of heat that the oceans have had to absorb. And what scientists are telling us, if we pass that threshold, that 1.5 degrees, then it's not just that things get gradually different, but suddenly things turn off. So suddenly the, the thermo uh, circulation of the air that, that creates a, a relatively warm summer in, in northern Europe, and a, but not too harsh a winter, stops working. And suddenly you get extremes of temperature in places that have normally had quite mild climates. Or what we're seeing in, in the Amazon now, the Amazon stops being able to produce its own rainfall and therefore has constant wildfires that massively deplete the forest at a much faster rate even than humans have been doing through farming. So the 1.5 degrees is, is, is important for that tipping point reason. We've just, we, we don't think our, our climate can survive if it goes past that, that point. You're, you're kind of alluding to the fact that uh, there could be a change in kind when there's enough of a, a change in quantity. Yeah, indeed. It's, it's that, that shift from sort of the, the, the quantity pushes us into a new era, a new epoch. And we already talk about the Anthropocene, so we're now in an age where human beings are influencing the geological developments uh, of the Earth, but we, want to, we can't risk going into a different stage of that Anthropocene, eventually. Yeah, let's talk about C40, an organization that you're leading. Uh, it brings together nearly 100 cities around the globe at different stages of development, different uh, models of development, of course. What is C40 doing and what is its unique role in the fight against climate change? So as you say, it's uh, 100 uh, mega cities, so we're, it's all very large cities, 3 million population plus. Globally representative, so we have the biggest cities in China, the biggest cities in the United States, in Europe, uh, in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia. Primarily what we do is we bring the leaders of those cities, both the mayors, the politicians and the technical uh, leaders together so that they can learn from each other and so go much faster. So they don't have to work out how to develop a low emission zone for the city to reduce emissions from traffic because London's already been pioneering this for 20 years and can share its experience so that many other cities uh, can copy it. But we also create um, a platform for those local leaders so that they can inter influence the intergovernmental, the, the broader international debate on climate. Because what we see actually is these, these major cities, a quarter of global GDP is produced in them just within our 100 members, about 800 million people. But they're reducing carbon emissions much faster than their respective nation states in most instances. So 75% of our member cities are cutting their emissions faster than their respective national governments. So would you say C40 is working in complement to existing framework and institutions such as the United Nations system, the, the multilateral and bilateral agreements and treaties? Yeah, absolutely. We, we see our role at the moment in 
the intergovernmental climate world, which has, has really struggled to get global collaboration. What happens in C40 is a symbol that it is possible to have really strong collaboration across different politics, geographies, economics, different stages of development around a common scientific goal. But actually, the thing you see with cities, it's a race to the top because they they're competing with each other. They're competing mm -hmm. for investment. They're competing for the best people. They're competing for tourists. But the only way they can compete is to offer something that's, that's better. They don't, they don't have armies to confront with each other. They don't have trade barriers to put up. So if London sees that New York has got uh, a better way of dealing with traffic, then London, London better copy it. Yeah, it's all about best practices. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Can you give us some examples, stories of success and also some cases of challenges? Well, I mean, I, I mentioned uh, one just then. Uh, London, which is my home city, now has the world's largest low emission zone. It's called an ultra-low emission zone. It's the whole of the metropolitan area of the city that's got the toughest vehicle emission standards of any city in the world. That's just been expanded. In the original smaller zone, it, it halved uh, the fine particulates, so the air pollution that really causes our, our lungs problems and is, is really driving now a shift to cleaner vehicles uh, and a lot more walking and cycling as the, as the air gets cleaner. We have 20 other cities that are now looking at that example in London uh, to copy it. Here, um, you know, here in China, absolutely, cities here seen as the world leaders in electric vehicles. So Shenzhen, the first big city in the world to have all of its buses electric. I was in Shanghai, as I mentioned, they're, they're catching up. Nearly 90% of the buses electric, most of the taxis, all of the scooters, 20% of the cars. That's much, much higher numbers than in Europe or North America. In fact, Latin America's got the best. It's cities like Bogota mm. in Colombia are the next largest electric uh, bus fleet. So that's an example that we're, we're taking all around the world. Or if you're just thinking about the, um, the green itself, uh, Freetown, it's the, the capital city of Sierra Leone, one of the poorest countries in the world, but now one of the greenest because the mayor there has uh, created Tree Town Freetown, so a program to replant the forests that were destroyed in civil war all around the edge of the city to create protection uh, from flooding, from heat, but also to create a new industry uh, in the medicines that can be derived from those forests. Yeah, if you think about different programs and policies, there are national policies that are oftentimes dictating what cities and provinces and states can do. So any challenges uh, during your line of duties, uh, the work of your team and uh, during those assignments working across cities and uh, you know, across the globe? Yeah, I think you know, the, the two really big universal challenges, perhaps universal outside of China, is, is one, finance, particularly for Global South cities, that often are reliant for capital investment on multilateral development banks, but banks that just don't look at an urban scale when they make investment. So they, they invest through national governments uh, and don't, or didn't until very recently, have urban scale uh, climate programs. So that's something we've been trying to address through the power of C40. You know, the other really big challenge is just the pace of change of cleaning electricity grids. Because most of our cities have powers that are on the demand side. So they can affect the demand for clean vehicles through making it cheaper to drive an electric vehicle and expensive to drive one that's on petrol or diesel. They can use regulations that mean that buildings have to use uh, renewable energy. But if that supply isn't coming through national policy in the grid in countries where energy is determined at a national level, that, that's a real barrier. And you know, that's true particularly in Europe, but also in, in Africa 
uh, and to a certain in, in Latin America, less so in North America, less so in China. Yeah, as we're entering a post-COVID world, uh, there are numerous challenges which are multi-fold. For example, jobs, employment, incomes. Those are the priorities for many societies and countries around the world as people are scrambling for ways to get back on their feet uh, in mm. terms of having a better life and living conditions. And how do you reconcile the necessity to uh, keeping a certain momentum for economic growth while implementing those uh, climate goals? You know, we've actually seen in the C40 cities a stronger commitment on climate action since the COVID pandemic. I think part of the reason for that was because it was a, a global challenge. All of our cities were affected by it at the same time. It really brought the mayors together. We had incredibly strong and frequent calls between the mayors to work out how to deal, you know, how do you manage waste in a pandemic? Lots of assistant, uh, assistance from Chinese cities, Korean cities initially into Europe and North America uh, to manage. And that, so I think it created a culture of we can solve this problem together, we can solve the climate crisis together. But also actually what we're seeing in our cities is there isn't a choice between development and climate action. The two really do go together. The faster you, you green your economy, the, the faster you create jobs. So our, our estimate is if all of the cities in C40 deliver the climate targets they've committed to by 2030, so it's roughly halving emissions by 2030, that will create 50 million good new green jobs. Big number, but also it's a third higher than business as usual. And when you look at very specific sectors, investing in new renewable energy power in a city allied to building energy efficiency creates six times more jobs than if you just invested in the traditional gas-fired electricity power plant. So we now think the message is if you want jobs, you want economic development, focus on, on clean energy, focus on greening your cities. Yeah, because back in the day, uh, the developing countries, the global south, have been talking about this common but differentiated responsibilities mm -hmm. when it comes to carbon emissions. And now you're kind of saying that there needs to be a change in notions in all this. Yeah, I, th I think the practical reality, as long as the capital is, is available to invest, so particularly for African cities, what they struggle with is, is attracting capital in for the new technologies. So we experienced a problem in Latin America, for example, where the major European and North American bus companies weren't interested in selling their electric buses in Latin America or Africa. They said, you know, let them wait for another 10 years, another 15 years, we're just going to focus on, on Europe and North America. We were right through C40, we were able to, to change that. Actually, it was a, a Chinese manufacturer, BYD, yeah. that came in and said, well, we're willing to sell in that market. We are selling a lot in Brazil. Yeah, huge, huge volumes now. And it, it's totally, totally changed the market. So Latin America went from being right at the back of the queue for electric buses to being the second, second fastest developing after, after China. But it, it took an aggregation. Those cities couldn't have achieved that on their own. They needed to come together as a block and go to the market and say, here's a big opportunity. Base your companies in our cities, create jobs here in our cities, uh, and retrain workers so that they can get the skills to, work, to move into electric buses from the diesel buses. Yeah, sounds promising. What's also promising is one of the programs that C40 has launched that's called Green and Thriving Neighborhoods Project. Uh, it was um, launched in Sichuan along with other provinces. Can you talk to us about this project? Yeah, I, I love this project. And it, this actually, this is another thing that's really come out of the pandemic because Green Thriving Neighborhoods is all about providing a, at a whole neighborhood level uh, a place where people can live and can thrive without needing to rely on polluting vehicles, polluting cars. So 15-minute city concepts that you should be within 
however rich or poor you are, a 15-minute walk or a cycle or a public transport trip, of all the things that make life really livable, a school, hospitals, health services, jobs, shops, but also parks, green spaces. And I think the pandemic really brought home the value of that to people living in cities, that when they were confined to their, their own homes, the chance to use public spaces, public parks, public squares, public facilities, so public luxury, I, I, I like to call it rather than private luxury, went right up. So what we're doing, doing in that, in that programme is, is working with cities right around the world to redesign their cities on the basis of that, of that, that principle. And uh, how realistic is it when you think about some old cities, uh, ancient alleyways, the cultural relics, and of course the policies to protect those uh, ancient sites? Where this policy got famous actually is some of those oldest cities, Paris, you know, which, it, which the centre of Paris hasn't really changed in 250 years. Uh, Mayor Hidalgo in, in Paris made 15-minute cities the, the focus of her approach. Barcelona, another great European old city. I was just there uh, last week. They call it super blocks there. So they've, they've redesigned the city so that the traffic can't just pass through all of the streets. Every sort of third street is, is closed to traffic so that it can be made a pedestrian area. Uh, quiet makes the neighbourhood quieter makes it much less polluted in terms of air pollution and cuts down uh, the carbon emissions. But I was delighted to see in Shanghai as well, in the, in the Urban Planning Museum, I know, on one floor devoted to the 15-minute city, and that concept has been applied to the development of five new city block areas within Shanghai where five million people will live. You love Shanghai, don't you? I do love Shanghai. <laughs> <laughs> okay, talking about China as a whole, uh, the Chinese government has announced this very ambitious goal of carbon peaking and carbon neutralizing in 2030 and 2060, respectively. How do you see that happening? Well, you know, China is leading the world. It's the, the biggest investor in solar power, the biggest investor in, in wind power. I think 40% of new capacity in both wind and solar last year uh, was, was in China. So we can see that that's real leadership. I think on electric vehicles as well, absolutely the vast majority of electric vehicles in the world are uh, here in China. The, the challenge for China, as for, as for everywhere, is how to accelerate the move out of fossil fuels because there is no solution to tackling climate change that doesn't end with rapidly stopping the burning of fossil fuels and that, that's the big challenge here as everywhere. Yeah, China said uh, it wants the BRI program, one of its uh, flagship international development programs, to be clean, uh, you know, uh, no longer any uh, coal-fired power plants and many consider that ambitious. So you said, Mark, one of the things that keeps me optimistic is that many of the foremost climate leaders influencing political discourse at local, national, and international levels are under the age of 29. Um, can you elaborate? Yeah, I guess it's, we, we all wish we were still under 29, don't we? But uh, I, you know, I think what the youth climate leaders have done in the last five years has been absolutely essential to re revitalizing uh, political leaders around climate just by speaking the truth to power, just reminding us that we're in a climate emergency. It's not just a problem that we can deal with after we've dealt with other things. It's an existential crisis. It's climate breakdown. It's not climate change. Our climate is, is breaking down. So I think speaking that truth to power, but I'm inspired now. We have a, a, a youth forum in C40 that brings together youth leaders from all of our cities right across the world. And what we're trying to do with them now is, is to help them so that they're they're not just campaigning against the things that they don't like, that are not being done well. We, want them, they, we need them to do that. We need that voice to say to us older people when it's not being done well. 
but also to campaign for, to be supportive of the mayors, the presidents, the prime ministers, when they're doing the right thing. Because one thing that we all confront in, in, in my line of work is there's always a vested interest that is trying to stop climate action. To, to maintain their profits, they try and stop the shift out of clean, into clean vehicles, into clean power, and we need people to stand up and support politicians when they do the right thing on that. We know that C40, of course, is working with cities and mayors, um, but uh, one thing that uh, none of us can escape is uh, the fact that we're all susceptible to international policies and international relations. Uh, we've seen positive developments over the course of the past few weeks. Uh, the governor of California coming mm -hmm. to China, signing environmental cooperation agreements with the Chinese Ministry of uh, Environment and the Ecology. Um, what kind of relations do you think China and the U.S. should forge when it comes to climate? Yeah, I thought that Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom's visit seemed very important, very timely. Uh, he's, he's an amazing leader. California is an absolute world leader on climate. Um, you know, I, when I think back, you know, the, the single most positive moment we've had in the intergovernmental climate uh, world in the last 30 years that of, of climate action has been the Paris Agreement. 2015 was really possible because of a historic bilateral agreement between President Xi and President uh, Obama at the time. And I, you know, I, I feel really if we're going to make a big step forward again now, 10 years later, it's going to need that kind of bilateral collaboration again. So it was great to see Governor Newsom here. We'll, we'll be working with Governor Newsom and the, the governors of the world at, at, at COP28 this year, in fact. There's going to be a bigger focus on local and regional leadership than ever before at COP. And what we're trying to do is, is show that governors, mayors can work together. They're really delivering to science-based targets to give that extra bit of push of hope to the, in, to the national leaders that they can make that, that kind of collaboration work too. Yeah, what do you hope to see happening at COP28, uh, what should be happening at COP28 uh, this November in Dubai, the UAE? Well, I hope and I think we will see a widening out of what the COP climate talks mean. Traditionally, they've really been presidents and prime ministers getting together and negotiating hard. You know, I will only reduce my emissions 10% if you'll cut yours by 20%. Whereas the whole world of climate action is, is much more collaborative than that. So what the, the COP presidents, uh, the U United Arab Emirates, have done for this COP is to open up the space. So the first two days of COP is going to have a big gathering of mayors and of governors. Um, we're going to bring a very positive message of, of hope, of showing the emissions that are being cut in the big cities of the world, the speed that that's happening, the jobs that are being created, and the health benefits that are accruing. Um, but also, I, I hope from COP we're going to see a change in the global finance infrastructure as well. Mark Watts, Executive Director of the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group. Thank you, and um, thank you for all the work that you and your team have done. Thank you, Keep sir. the good fight. Thank you. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing.